All right, so we're here with Dr. Vicki Goodyear from University of Birmingham. Uh, we'll be discussing the 2019 article uh, that Dr. Goodyear co-authored with Melissa Parker from the University of Limerick and Ash Casey from Loughborough University. Uh, the title is Social Media and Teachers Professional Learning Communities. Um, so the paper was published in uh, PESP. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, joining us on a hot summer day in, uh, in the UK. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking about this paper more. Yeah. So can we uh, start with just telling a little bit about the background leading up to the study? I know uh, you've done some research with physical education teachers, social media use in the past. Um, uh, so how is this study kind of positioned within your larger kind of line of inquiry? Yeah, so um, my interest in social media for teacher professional development in all honesty came um, about as a bit of an accident. So um, during my PhD, um, I was my PhD was focused on supporting teachers with curriculum change with a particular focus on cooperative learning. And it was a school-based uh, year professional development program. Now during that, um, the teachers that I worked with, we began talking to each other via social media on both Facebook and Twitter. So within that study, I had to quickly submit an addendum for ethics to kind of explore what was going on there and, and understand what happened um, after the actual data collection of why we used social media. Um, but then as part of that, um, during that process, I was also using, for example, Twitter and I was engaging in PE chat and I was a moderator. Um, and so I was very active on, on social media and of engaging with um, different teachers and academics and different communities. So that was where it all kind of started. And then based on that, I then did this research which sought to investigate PDCHAMP, but within the kind of broader area of what I'm interested in is looking at professional development and looking at how digital technologies can bridge the research theory practice gaps and how they offer new kind of translational mechanisms. So social media is one aspect, but we've also been interested in things like online courses, such as the massive uh, MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses, which we ran in 2016 and 2017, and um, video-based aspects to professional development training, such as animated videos um, and those kind of aspects. So that's Can the- you... Can you give a plug for your website? Because um, I know you have a you have a ton of information on there. I've sent some of my students on there in my classes. So can you just remind people what that website is and kind of what's on there as well? Yeah. So on the website, it's called OpenCPD.net, um, and it's that's basically open professional development. So we host resources on there based on different research projects that we have. So there's resources on there that relate to young people's uses of social media for their health and guidelines that we've created. Um, There is also recently launched yesterday a new Google course, uh, a course sponsored by Google. On uh, It's a new online course starting in September that is free. um, And we have um, a limited number of spaces. So if you're interested in that, um, do sign up. And it's targeted at teachers focused on how you can use social media to support youth health, health and well-being in positive ways. Awesome. Um, so let's get back to this specific study. Um, your study brings together teachers' use of social media for continuing professional development with the concept of a professional learning community. So from your perspective, 
how can professional learning communities develop in digital spaces they, that may not involve this kind of like face-to-face -face contact? Well, I think, I suppose the biggest link is if you think about literature on professional learning communities and social media, it's the social element and it's the interactive element. So there's the, the kind of link between the two and how they might hang together. But the interactions is, is um, does bring some differences in digital spaces. Um, so you could draw on perhaps Dana Boyd's work to do four key big differences, which would be things like searchability of information, the spreadability of, of content, the visibility of yourself and information, and then the persistence. So things like digital footprints and the durability of information. So if you take those kind of principles and then bridge it with principles of learning design or adult learning theory or professional development, principles of effective professional development, you could make some links between characteristics of sustainability, interactivity, relevant, evidence-based, authentic. So if you take the two, the technology design and the adult learning theory design, there is potential for it to map onto professional learning communities, but in different ways. So then what are the advantages to this kind of like a social media platform like Twitter that you investigated? Um, what advantages are there over traditional forms of like face-to-face -face professional development and are there any disadvantages to that? Yeah, so I think with anything, I think it depends how it's used and depends how you see it. So if we take some of those principles that I've just said, so uh, you can find people with common interests. So that's the, the uh, spreadability of information, for example. But within that, it's perhaps difficult to navigate mass user-generated spaces. So in a professional learning community, in a perhaps school setting, you might have four or six of you working together. It's maybe a little bit more difficult to navigate that in open spaces of social media. So you then might turn to close in smaller spaces. So again, it depends on how you use it. Um, you can stay anonymous if you want to, but then that brings around questions of identity and if you're given the right identity and if you're being fake, true, all those aspects. Um, and then there's also, in terms of staying anonymous, but you've also got to be um, concerned about what you share because of the persistence and the durability and how you protect your students, your schools, and, and so on. Um, and then there's the aspect of connectivity, which can be hugely beneficial because you can be online 24-7, you can get information wherever you want, but at what stage does it become oppressive and when do you turn off and work? So it depends how you use it and, and those different ideas. Yeah. So the double-edged sword of technology, us working over summer, doing podcasts. So I, I hear you. When do you turn it off? Uh, so let's go into the methods. You use Twitter chats as a data collection method. And it. I know you've done this in a previous study, but um, can you discuss why you took that approach along with the interviews? And also, can you just comment on the website Twitonomy, I went down this rabbit hole on this. I had no idea that you could source information through through something like that. And it seems like a really cool data collection method, especially in something that you're, um, the type of study that you're doing. Yeah, so the reason we um, use two data sources, so we use the kind of traditional-ish traditional -ish format of interviews and collected data from Twitter, is we wanted to bridge real-time uh, authentic data on social media use with um, retrospective accounts. So in most studies on, uh, because of the ethical challenges of getting around access to social media data and permissions, it's very difficult to get the real-time data. So 
One way to navigate that is to use a specific chat uh, where you can locate a hashtag and you can download all the tweets related to that hashtag. Now, in this study, we use Twitonomy, which means you can collect, I think it's about 750 tweets within 24 hours um, and related to that hashtag. There are other um, uh, different different platforms that you can use. You can use Envivo and use things like NCAPTURE to download all the data in that aspect related to Twitter. But we chose this one um, mainly because we had uh, familiarity with it before. Um, and what it does is it enables you to download it within the 24 hour period, but it gives you information on who sent the tweets, number of retweets, um, device use, location. So you get a whole range of information that you can use to then analyze that. So we downloaded the data from the Twitter chats. And what we did from that is that we um, used that to identify some common themes initially. So we coded the data with common themes. But we also wanted to use it as a sampling strategy, so we got to identify different people we could interview. So, for example, um, there were high, mid, or low tweeters. So we wanted to select a sample who we could interview from from that, as well as the moderators of, of PE chat. Um, and then um, the interviews, you often forget what you did when you on social media. Like I would forget what I posted to social media um, last week. Um, so what we did was we got the tweets that each person had shared and sent them a reminder of those tweets and used them as a elicitation technique for the interviews. So then we used sampling, strategy, information as a source of data, but also an interview technique, so it was dual. Right. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting way to definitely collect data. And I guess my question is, how did you navigate the ethical approval for the study. I know you you have a section in the paper, but it, it it's it clearly would be tricky to you know collect data. Whereas it's a public forum, so do you need to give anonymous names or so? Can you just talk a little bit about how to how you navigated the ethics of a uh, public place online? Yeah. So um, in terms of ethics, um, I think one of the the things that we've found across our studies that we've done on digital platforms is that it's beneficial to work with ethical review boards. Um, so uh, with, for this study, for example, I went and, and talked to the ethical review board and said, this is what we want to do, how can we do it? Um, and so as long as you are open and upfront with the participants about what you are doing and why you are doing it, there, and there is no... Um, cause for risk or harm, then you can navigate some of these issues. The fact that they're adults, the fact that they're using social media already, that your study is not forcing them to share or do anything that they wouldn't already be doing, means that you're not necessarily putting them at risk or harm. Um, uh, the things to anonymise would be things like um, the school, if they mention a particular student. But generally, teachers don't do that because they don't do that because they're in their professional capacity anyway. So those kind of issues are, are navigated against. The difficulty, um, the difficult aspect we had was consent and making sure that everybody can see the consent. So we adopted a strategy to share it on a blog page and post a number of tweets to remind people that we would do what we were doing. Um, how you can ensure that everybody's seen that and can't so that's just a, a challenge that you have to accept um, in terms of um, anonymization well in terms of the tweets and reporting on it you could copy and paste some of the tweets from within the paper and you could find into google and you could find the source so there's really no point in in using fake names so right. 
that was the strategy that we adopted and we just it was kind of very practical pragmatic approach of what you can see what you can't and what you can do um and as long as you lay that out and explain it and ground it in the, the typical things that ethical review boards want then you can work around these issues yeah it's, a, it's actually really exciting to to see how the methodology is changing right because they are you know we're moving away from a like you talked about a little bit more of a traditional data collection method to going to something that's already public and you know choosing not to do that and i think one of the uh interesting things you've done is you you talked about the validity of the study as well so you talk about a relativist approach to validity and determining quality of your study so i know this might be more of like a researcher uh, kind of question, but I think that there are scholars that listen to our podcast. So can you speak a little bit to that? Um, I think some of our listeners might be interested in this kind of um, a different way of explaining in a qualitative study, not just trustworthiness and credibility. Um, so can you speak to that relativist approach to validity and determining quality? Yeah, so that um, approach has come largely out of the work of Brett Smith and Kerry McGannon um, and is located in the area, broad area of sports psychology. Um, and what their perspective was, that there's loads of different measures um, we can have of quality. So, for example, in our field, we typically use the, the trustworthiness. Um, in psychology, there's sometimes aspects of rigid criteria that people use as often a check, a tick box to see, yeah, you've done this, you've done this. The problem is, is that not all of those fit every single study. Um, and sometimes you do see in some papers that people have forced their explanations into those four criteria. And you think, well, have you really done that? You haven't. Um, or is that really necessary to do that? And it's not. So their perspective on um, a relativist approach is, again, to be very pragmatic and practical about what you did and what you've done to ensure quality. And being upfront and honest about what you couldn't do and why. So rather than saying, you know, you have to do this, you have to do this to meet the criteria, you say, well, I've done this through doing this, I've done this through doing this. So you pick out some characteristics. Um, so in our paper, um, we used, we, for instance, said um, we draw on credibility um, between our, our engagement in PE chat and our familiarity with it, it enhanced the credibility of the findings. Um, but we didn't necessarily go on to explain, for example, concepts that some people sometimes use in terms of tri triangulation um, because it was apparent in the different methods that we've used in the iterative process. So, um, and then, you know, we, we, we think a, a good example of quality is that it is a conceptual link between the method and the theory and how these hang together and then are evident in the results. So we've said that. Um, so you'll see, so some people, when they look at this paper, they might think, oh, they haven't done this and they haven't done that. And I think the, the background to the, the relativist approach is you say what you, you've done and why, and, and then that, that's, your, that's your argument for quality. Yeah, and I would, I would recommend anybody to read that paper who's doing qualitative research. Um, I had that paper brought to my attention through a reviewer, and uh, I went through and kind of re-examine the way that I talk about my qualitative uh, methodology based on that paper. It was, it was really um, well-written and really informative. So let's go into your results. You had two main uh, themes focused on. One was engagement and the other one was uh, shared practices. Uh, can you talk us um, 
through a little bit about what those main themes were and how they related back to the purpose of your study? Yeah, so um, what we were looking at professional learning communities and what we know about any kind of group, whether it's teacher professional development or kids in school or in PE, is that different people engage in different ways. So what we were interested in, how do different people engage in, in different communities and groups? Um, and what we actually found that there were different types of engagement. There was one kind of the big names, um, and anyone that uses social media will probably be aware of the big names. They're the people that tweet a lot, <laughs> share a lot. They're very active on social media. Um, then there's the other um, kind of group that people will also be familiar with is, is perhaps the lurkers. Um, that these are the people that don't tweet a lot, um, that perhaps look and see um, and, and what's going on. And then, you know, there's the, the, the moderate people that might tweet every couple of days or, or engage every now and again, but they're not really um, active as, or less active than the other two. Um, and then you've got another form of engagement in PeeChat, which is a moderator, which you could say is basically a CPD facilitator, um, and they're supporting the discussions. So the overarching message from that, that theme is, that yes, there's different forms of engagement, but much like any other professional development, just because people aren't engaging as much doesn't mean they're learning more or less. And just because you're a high tweeter doesn't mean you're learning more or less. It's everybody's contributing to the shared objective of the, the community and the shared questions, shared understandings. So it's okay to participate in different ways. And then that leads on into the second thing, which was about shared practices. And it shows how the different types of different people contribute to developing shared practices and how on social media, it's very similar to offline, perhaps context where you have different questions, you form different groups, um, and you can watch how different people engage. What was interesting and perhaps links to the points that I've said earlier about the, the um, mass generated spaces versus the smaller spaces is that the participants were generally favourable about PE chat, which sometimes involved you know, 100 participants. But what they actually found that the time, the connections that they made on PE chat facilitated their learning after PE chat. And that often occurred in smaller groups through different platforms such as Voxer, where they could interact with just like four or five of them and develop really in-depth practices. So if we're taking the kind of communities of practice framework as a, as a strong theory, we can't give evidence to the claim, but we would probably say that there's more evidence of the community of practice and the principles within the smaller groups rather than the mass, mass group. Right. And that would be the two things. Awesome. So the, um, the project provides like a, a lot of really good insight for us into how social media and, and looking at specifically in your study, Twitter um, can be used as this professional development uh, initiative for physical education teachers. Um, so based on what you just talked about in your uh, results section, what are some recommendations that you can provide for teachers who are thinking about jumping into Twitter for professional learning? Um, so I would suggest that um, you don't, don't have to do it. <laughs> don't think of it as something that you have to get involved with. I mean, there is the thing at the moment where everyone should get on the bandwagon and that, that's not always the case. Um, but if you are using social media as well, then you can just be aware that there are different forms of engagement and that you can still learn. So you might choose to be a lurker um, and you might choose to just watch and follow and participate in that. It's absolutely fine. Um, perhaps there should be some lessons learned if you're an active social media from the role of the moderators in this study about how you can facilitate and support other people's engagement and learning and how 
um, how not to perhaps control or, or, or be over, over dominant in conversations. Um, but I think what you can say about um, what we see about the different forms of engagement is actually very different, the same to the face-to-face -face scenarios of, of how you would you'd recommend people to engage in professional development. So using the different forms of, of engagement and understanding those is, is what I would recommend. Yeah, and we had um, Stephen Harvey on about his uh, paper on uh, Twitter use as well. And it's it's interesting to see all the different kinds of roles that people take and also how you know somebody that posts all of their best lessons or all of their best activities we put them up on this pedestal of being the best PE teacher out there and so I think sometimes and in, in, in his study he kind of found that you know beginning teachers wouldn't post as much because they thought that they were inadequate because they were failing right they were having bad lessons and they were you know because nobody's posting the epic fails of you know the learning experiences of oh that that lesson didn't really go my way on on twitter so i i think it's it's an interesting space and i and i do think that when um people are isolated they're the only pe teacher in an elementary school and they don't have colleagues necessarily twitter can be a great great uh great venue for them um, so you did use in-service teachers specifically, but um, what do you think the implications are for teacher education? What, what, what kind of advice would you give someone like me who's a PEAT faculty member and reads a study and are interested in helping prepare my future students for professional learning communities through social media? Well, I think, yeah, you just touched on it, preparing them for the future is essentially what we're doing, we're preparing them for CPD, so how do you engage with CPD as an ongoing experience throughout your, your professional learning journey as a teacher? So I think professional development is going to become even more digital. It's changed dramatically since I found out about the, the Twitter and stuff was part of my PhD, and that was back in 2011, that process involved. And so... Um, things have changed dramatically and they're going to get more pervasive, more explicit. Um, I think teacher education, um, we're already seeing master's courses online, I think in the future more and more courses will become online or more modules will become online. So part of that needs to be about well, how do you use Twitter or social media for professional learning and being open to it as a resource and perhaps thinking about those four principles about what's different about online environments um, in terms of learning and also the, you know we're in an era of fake news uh, what do we trust what's evidence-based and what do universities do universities are evidence-based institutions and that's essentially our role within this social media learning nexus kind of complicated space is the evidence-based aspect um, so in an era of fake news, I think that's our key role as teacher educators to understand how we can support those because actually, you know, the teachers coming up, they're going to be, they're, they're, the age range that they are now, they are the ones that were born into a world of social media where most of us teaching weren't in teacher right. education. Weren't. So I think, yeah, the view of evidence-based and fake news is, is the responsibility of the profession at the moment. Right. So what, um, what advice would you give to researchers that are looking into social media as a, um, as a data collection tool? Are there any like suggestions you would give from, you know, or lessons that you've learned about this um, way of collecting data? 
Um, yeah, so I think that there are, there are two things, and they're probably perhaps linked, the methodology and the theory. I think our traditional methods are not necessarily fit for purpose, and what we are seeing is perhaps um, traditional theories, such as the communities of practice, are trying to be forced onto data, um, where we know that there are differences, so I suppose it's about being brave and uh, pushing the boundaries a little bit, um, and this is something Missy Parker would agree with who's an author on this, is to be brave and push the boundaries a little bit and it perhaps be open to contradictions in the data and differences that might challenge what we think about existing theories or existing methods or pushing the boundaries with methods if we know there's something to find out and how can we work around those issues to find the data to get people to say or express what they want and collect it and report it. Um, so it's, yes, it's pushing the boundaries and not just saying it's another space, it's another data source. It's different and we need to understand it. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot to take away from the study, but you, you write in the study that it is exploratory in nature. Um, so what are the next steps to, um, to, what's the next kind of research question or what are you looking at going forward in teachers' engagement in social media as a form of fresh, uh, professional development? Um, I think one thing that we're interested in is sustainability. So the studies that I've done have been snapshots of looking at you know a specific moment in time or something. So um, essentially, that's the impact of practice. Um, if we take the ultimate goal of CPD, it's to, to monitor the CPD impact on teachers and then how that translates into students. So it's still it's trying to map those pathways and how we can understand what is the actual impact of digital engagement on professional learning. Um, but then it's also mapping these these kind of theories and concepts and, and how can we improve the way we investigate and understand learning. And if we do that, does that change the way we understand learning in offline contexts? Awesome. That that was a really insightful, really um, really great paper. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I said really a lot of times there too. That's because I'm so passionate about this stuff. I, I find it very interesting, especially from the point of view that I got on Twitter just a year ago and just the connections that I've made personally, professionally, um, and just the different kind of um, scholars that I got to know through, through there and see their work um, has been great. So uh, really appreciate your time. Um, I think it's a really cool peek into an exploratory study into what Twitter can be for professional learning communities. So hopefully we can continue doing this. I think myself as a PEAT educator, I need to do a little better job in including social media and navigating social media as a tool, because I think sometimes teachers will look at that as the be, a, be all end all, and they will just kind of take that as like you talked about, maybe non-evidence-based um, products. So um, for those of you who want to read uh, the full article by Dr. Goodyear uh, and her co-authors, you can check out the full citation in the comments section. Um, and thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. That's all we got for you on this one. Thanks for listening.